Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make herstory. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, it's about to get real dark in here. <laughs> How so? It's a murder podcast. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. I'm just kidding. Uh, she was executed by <laughs> oh, the shit. state. Uh, today, I want to talk about the hanging of Ruth Blay. The photo that is between us is terrifying. <laughs> it's a woman with a noose around her neck. I don't know why I'm chuckling. It's That'll give me nightmares. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Okay, Brooke. So today we're going to talk about a New Hampshire woman, Ruth Belay. Okay. She is the third and final woman executed by the state of New Hampshire. Okay. What years are we talking about here? This is the colonial era in U.S. history. Okay. So they do not have gas chambers or anything uh, of the sort. So this no. is a hanging. These are your choices. You could be burned at the stake. Oh, choice hung, one. Yep. Hung. Choice two. drawn and quartered. Always fun. Is that when you stand against the wall and someone shoots at you? No. That is when they stretch you and chop you up and like... Stop it. Yeah. Someone wrote that down and was like, this is an option. That's a plan. What? Yeah. I Ew. Know. Dark. Awful. All right. So, so colonial times. What did this Ruth Blay do okay. that she is being executed? First and foremost, I want to tell everybody that there's a book called Hanging Ruth Blay. It's very thin. It's very could, thin. It has a terrifying cover has of a, terrifying a cover. very sketchy looking yep. hanged woman. Yep. Um, hung? Hunged hung? woman? Hung did. Hanged. hanged. Um, English teachers. Where is, my English teachers at? <laughs> it was written by Carolyn Marvin, who did a lot of work at the Portsmouth and, um, and Tham, which is like a big library, basically, in downtown Portsmouth. Oh, is, is that where the first library is? It's one of, I don't know if it's the first, but it's one of the first libraries in Portsmouth. You have to pay to have a membership there. And Bougie. It's, yeah, it's very fancy. Go for all. So she did a ton of research there to try to look for primary sources mm -hmm. about Ruth Blay's death. Okay. So 
Blay is the third woman executed by the state of New Hampshire. And then the American Revolution happens shortly after this. And no other women have been executed in New Hampshire's history. So oh, wow. it all happens during the colonial period, which is kind of interesting. That's really, that is really interesting. And so prior to that, the first part, the first woman, they were just leaving women in asylums or in jail. They wouldn't execute them. I mean, just statistically, men tend to commit more violent crimes than women do. Whoa, that's so, a big fact. Is big that fact. true? Wicked true. Yeah. Like, uh, like it, disproportionately. Is that true for back then or just even in current times? In current times. And, you know, psychologists look at that from like a biologic standpoint and... It's, you know, there's like, you know, when those like slight differences in mm. how genders behave happen, it's like, okay, men are a little bit more violent. And that really only impacts men on the extremes of a population. So when you look at a prison population, it's like predominantly male. And it's because you're looking at the extremes of society. It doesn't mean that like all men are violent, right? It means that like that's a yeah. people on the. So we're not making that sweeping statement. Definitely not. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. Right, so tell me about. It's Ruth Blake. So Ruth Blake. And one of the interesting things about the three women executed by the state of New Hampshire is they're all executed for the same thing. And it's a crime you've never heard of. Oh. Are you ready? Concealing a pregnancy. Shit. <laughs> so not You can go down for that? Not being pregnant. But concealing not, one. Not having a child out of wedlock, but hiding the fact that you had a child out of wedlock is the crime. Interesting. And it's a hangable crime. In a time where, and I just want to like give context, in a time where if you had a child out of wedlock, that would be the worst thing for your social Apparently standing. It's a hangable offense. Yeah. So before we get to what is knowable about Ruth Blay, I want to tell you, I want to read the ballad of Ruth Blay. Written, oh, fun. Written a century later. Do you have music? Uh, um, sure. I will sing you a song. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Ruth. <laughs> this is written uh, just before the Civil War. So, um, you know, century after Ruth so Blay. So we've got a flute. Lived. Potential drums. Oh, yeah. Um, There's stuff. No brass instruments. <laughs> Go. Okay. Uh, with its streets of leafy beauty and its houses quaint and brown, with its dear associations hallowed by the touch of time, you may read this thrilling legend, this sad tale of wrong and crime. In the dear month of December, 90 years ago today, hundreds of the village people saw the hanging of Ruth, Ruth Blay. Blay. You got it. Saw her clothed in silk and satin, born beneath the gallows tree, dressed as her wedding garments, soon the bride of death to Ew, be. What? Uh, saw her tears of shame and anguish, heard her shrieks of wild despair, echo through the neighboring woodlands, thrill the clear and frosty air, till their hearts moved to pity at her fear and agony, doomed to die, they said, unjustly, weak but innocent. Is she dun 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 innocent? I mean, very, very good. Yeah. Going. Okay. I'm riveted. When at last, in tones of warning from its high and airy tower, slowly with its tongue of iron, told the bell the fatal hour. Like the sound of distant billows, when the storm is wild and loud, breaking on the rocky headland, ran a murmur through the crowd. 
And a voice among them shouted, Pause before the deed is done. We have asked reprieve and pardon for the poor misguided one. But these words for Sheriff Packer rang above the swelling noise. Must I wait to lose my dinner? Draw away the cart, my boys. <gasps> so this is, um, the visual would be a horse moving the cart and pulling her up. Moving the cart that she's standing on so that she falls and hangs. <sighs> it's the worst. Fold thy hands in prayer, a woman. Take the last look at the sea. Take the last look of the landscape. God be merciful to thee. And we'll end there. But this is the ballad. And it goes on and on and on about Ruth Blay. And so a century later, they're singing a song about her. They're remembering this woman and how she is unjustly hanged in the colonial period. So she's obviously kind of important, right? Yeah. Like, like, this is a significant story. And I grew up in New Hampshire, and I never heard the story of Ruth Blay. Why? Well, for all the reasons women's histories are <laughs> The historian, Carolyn Marvin, spent a ton of time researching the story of Ruth Blay. And that's the legend that's passed down. Um, you know, the sheriff says, like, I'm going to miss my dinner. It's sitting cold on the yeah, thing. Yeah, seems like, really kind. He seems Definitely like a- someone I would want to serve dinner to. Yeah. So, you know, like, how much of that is true? How much of that is false? And, yeah. like, what is the deal with this woman? And especially if people genuinely believed she was innocent, like, mm-hmm. what happened here? And why was she still hung? Ruth Blay is a teacher who lived in... Oh, good. <laughs> ...near outside of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, Portsmouth was the main... Uh, city for this yeah, for huge shipping colony imports exports it's a really big area yeah she probably didn't spend i mean it would be really difficult to travel far in her time and so she probably didn't spend and much time if any in portsmouth in her lifetime and if she did go there it would have been like a huge bustling city f- it, from her perspective living okay. kind of in the countryside surrounding the seacoast yeah, area New England today. colonial yeah for people who've never been to portsmouth portsmouth is a you know very colonial looking city even today it oh, has yeah. cobblestone streets cobblestone. old brick buildings there's still um all the lamps have to be under a certain um i forget what it's called but they can't be so bright yeah so they're still they look gaslit yeah they're yellow yeah to keep the old colonial yeah very colonial feel and you can't have bright lights on buildings it's not a city per se it's a colonial village yeah so ruth blay is hung um about a decade before the uh american revolution also to be noted we say portsmouth it's Portsmouth is how it's written if you're looking for it on a map. <laughs> it's a New England thing. Portsmouth. And we're also holding our summer retreat there. So That's the historians attending will get to check the city out. Yep. And we will walk to where Ruth Blay was <gasps> hung. Oh, my gosh. Stop it. A little morbid, but so, I'm in for it. Uh, 1768 is when Ruth Blay Wow. Um, well, give us a little bit of that time period. Kelsey. So this is um, towards the tail end of the first Great Awakening in in U.S. history, in world history. This is a period where you've got sort of a new, you know, you have like kind of the Puritan and early Quakers settling in different parts of mm-hmm. the, the colonies. But in New England, it's mostly like Puritan, Calvinist, and the Great Awakening is a sort of 
twist and a shift away from that sort of religious thinking. Um, because it's pretty dangerous at that time. <laughs> a lot of women would lose their lives. Yeah. But it's the Great Awakening is this huge movement to inspire mass um, conversion to Christianity to try to save all these people. And so I, I guess one of the things that you can kind of get a sense of is that there are lots of people who are not super religious and not attending church. And so what they're trying to do is go find these people wherever they are. The Great Awakening preachers um, are very charismatic, very entertaining. They go outside and they preach to people. Yeah, they're more like storytellers. They're huge storytellers. And um, they traveled all throughout New England. And she absolutely would have heard of the these speakers, this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a huge part of it. This is you know, the, the French and Indian War is also a really important context to this. So that if for the international folks, that's the Seven Years War. It is a war between Britain and France, really. Yeah. But from a colonist perspective, it's a war t- about westward expansion into the Ohio Territory. And the effect of that war in the late 1760s is to displace a lot of people. And and so, you know, that people are are moved and the, the kind of the financial consequences of that war are starting to play out. So all of those things mm-hmm. would have been happening around her. But she was a small, you know, most um, villages that were set up in, in southern, you know, modern day southern New Hampshire, because northern New Hampshire really isn't ex- like where we live is not yeah really um, settled at all by by white people. So where she is, though, it's still incredibly rural. And most towns would have like a teacher. Yeah. And, um, you know, so she would be teaching in a one room schoolhouse with, and usually it wasn't its own building. It was probably the meeting house or, you know, whatever that, you know, it, it doubled as the church on Sundays. It's the school during the week. It's like a multi-purpose building, basically. The rec center. The rec center. Yeah. <laughs> so she would teach there and it would be, you know, to any kids that are in the community from, a whole, you know, whole every age range group would be in the same classroom. In the same classroom, and so, which as a teacher, that's a nightmare. Like I would be like so snobby. Like, and they only had chalkboards and chalk. <laughs> right, I know. If that, it's right. like one book. And today's lesson is on X Y Z book. <laughs> yeah, like so limited resources. Um, but I think that tells us a little bit that like this is a very educated woman for her time, right? Which, oh my gosh, women reading usually means liberal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The other thing about Ruth that's important is she's not married. (gasps) Shame. Yeah. So she's this unmarried teacher living in the community. There's some interesting family history. And what's really cool about Marvin's book, it's a short read. It's definitely something high schoolers could read, maybe middle schoolers. And it's kind of a neat book to read with students about the historical process because that ballad that I read before is written a century after she died. The people who wrote it did not know her or anything about her. They're just sort of repeating the myth of Ruth Blay. And that doesn't necessarily, like, that's not like a good, even though that gives us a big overview of the day that she died, there are pieces of it that are probably fictional. Yeah. Who caught her? Who reported her? Why is she in trouble? Why does she have to go to jail? Right. And also, like, because this is an old story and because she's a woman, there are lots of missing details. Well, and there are male perspectives if they are there. Right. So what's 
what's kind of neat about it is teaching students, you could read this book and teach students the historic process. Like mm. how do we, how do we, you know, it's kind of like a big mystery. Like how do we solve what actually happened to yeah, this Yeah, how woman? would you write her story? Like if you were, what's the author's name again? Sorry. Um, if you were Carolyn? Carolyn Marvin. How would you begin to tell the tale when all you have are these four Scraps. or five things? Yeah. Yeah. And what could you determine about Ruth from these facts? Yeah. So one of the things that we do know, and she does, a, she painstakingly went through the archives to learn about this woman. Obviously. Is that at some point, she, ha- she, her family had an interest, and the whole first part of the book is about her family history. Her family had some complicated histories and in particular had this like rivalry with um, some like distant relatives of the, Ruth's the, family. Ruth's, yeah, some distant relatives of Ruth's immediate family. There was this like little, um, there's bad, bad blood between them. And so what's interesting is in the fall of 1767, Ruth becomes pregnant. Ruth never ad- tells anyone who the father of her child is. She Even takes, even at the hanging. She takes it to her grave. <gasps> so whoever this guy... Oh my gosh, I want to watch this movie so bad. Right? <laughs> whoever this guy is, she's protecting him. So, mm. the, so Marvin, you know, does this like questioning, like who would she be protecting? He might be a married man. Oh, yeah. Or... He might be... Man a, of the cloth. He might be a man of the Sheriff. cloth. Sheriff. Right? So whoever it is, she doesn't tell anyone. She's not giving it up. Yeah, she's not giving it up. And that's kind of an interesting detail, too. So when she becomes pregnant, she leaves her teaching post and she moves to be, uh, to stay in the home of this family that she is sort of has like a good connection. No, a not good, you know, the, the relatives that are not nice to her. Yeah, there's kind of this like weird relationship with them. And she lives and in, with them throughout her pregnancy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was like living with a person who is pregnant, I feel like having been pregnant, it's very obvious. Yeah, but back we, then there were lots lot, of layers. <laughs> I know, but I was a very big pregnant woman, so I'm not really sure. Yeah, but you sure. started small. That's what true. do we know about Ruth's frame? What do we got? What are we working on here? I, that that those types of details are not known. But that's the thing is like I I don't know that it would be that easy to hide a pregnancy back then. But there was a lot more clothing yeah available, and it was cold all the time. You could also like I don't know pull a like oh I just need to sit down. Yeah, it's I'm hot. Ready. I have the vapors. I don't know if oh, they. Yeah. <laughs> So, Whatever those terms are in the 1700s. Presumably, <clears throat> she hides this pregnancy from hey, the people that she's living it. with. And there is a big barn that doubled as a school where she was teaching while she was there. She had left her original post. And so created whoever, a school from nothing. No, no, no. The school was already there. And she wow. just assumed the that teaching new post. Got it. And she is teaching um, and then goes into early labor. According to her own accounts, she fell and went into labor. And the baby is born stillbirth. Oh, no. And she's in a panic because... Now it's murder. There are no witnesses to the birth. She had been concealing the pregnancy the entire time. So she hides the body of the baby in the floorboards in (gasps) in this barn. And one of her students, a little girl, 
came and found the dead baby. How does in that the days happen? Later, was right? she like, "Hmm, I'm gonna pull up this floorboard in the barn"? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know Who if this there girl? was like, you know, evidence on the floor that like it had been the boards had it, it been disturbed. Probably smelled. Probably smelled. Yeah. So. Whatever it is, this little girl finds the baby. And of course, and then we have screams. our first scientist. <laughs> and she is now. <laughs> yeah. So the men uh, oh, of the community are are come in to investigate. And you can just imagine all the men like marching in to be like, there's a baby in here. Yeah. You know, we need to we need to do something. How doth this happen? Right. <laughs> so um, they do an investigation. How do they investigate whose baby it is? Well, right. So they bring in a midwife to inspect Ruth. And the midwife finds accurately, probably, that Ruth had recently given birth because she what? looks at her. They, there's a document um, contained in this book uh, that she, you know, copies over. Um, and it's titled Inquisition of the Body of a Child Supposed of Ruth Blay. Wow. Um, so this is their investigation that they did. But um, how many women did they have to investigate throughout town to get to this one baby? Well, I think they, it doesn't sound like they investigated a lot of women because so it's they narrowed in the it down like, where who she's has teaching. To the barn? Who's old enough to have a baby? Right. I mean, back then, I imagine women were much more intuitive than today's women yeah. about pregnancies. Yeah. So they're probably like, who's of birthing age? <laughs> yeah. So the investigation reads, within the said province of New Hampshire on the 14th day of June in the 8th year of His Majesty's reign, George III, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., um, blah, 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 blah. All of these men so listed, and it's all men. There's like way too many. So of glad them. it's a jury of their peers. Yeah. And then it goes on and on. And it says, The said child was found dead in the barn of Benjamin Clough of the aforesaid Southampton, supposed to be born of the body of one Ruth Blay in said town. It appears to us, the jury, that the child came to its death by violence. Whoa. <gasps> that Whoa. it wasn't stillborn? Right. <clears throat> um, Interesting. Carolyn Marvin it adds some commentary here. She says that evening, in accordance with the law, the coroner sent um, a midwife to examine Ruth Blay to determine whether she had lately been delivered of a child. Um, the midwife then confirmed uh, what had been suspected and possibly known by some present. So she she doesn't buy that people didn't know. Interesting that that she wasn't pres that she was pregnant. And we also know that that same midwife went to court in Portsmouth later on to testify. So, oh, so all what's of these her people name? were there. Um, her name <laughs> Leading is, actress. Yeah, Abaya <laughs> Cooper. Oh, Abaya. Yeah. Sell out. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Doing her job effectively in the times. No, I just want to, like, having given birth, I want you to imagine Ruth's state at this moment. She's just given birth. So much sweat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So much sweat, so uncomfortable. Like it's everything's June. engorged and swollen and sore. Yep. Yeah. yeah. She's not well. And so she becomes ill and they summon a doctor, Dr. Oh, no. Josiah Bartlett, to come take care of her. And basically, um, uh, oh, and he goes on, by the way, to sign the Declaration of Independence in his oh, lifetime. Hey. Now you know. Okay. Um, but he decides that she eventually that she's well enough to be taken to Portsmouth where she would go on trial. 
Um, and so to back up a here, the, there, Ruth, remember, is one of three women who are accused and executed of this in New Hampshire's history. Oh, so all three women have been the exact same thing. What? In the other two women's stories, again, there was, there were babies' bodies found. One was in a well, um, you know, one elsewhere. And, um, they were accused and tried. And in, in the other two women's, Ruth basically has that press like she would have known those cases even though it happened earlier it's news it's news and so or if no i mean her lawyer would have known right if she got a lawyer right so what's really hard about ruth's case is she goes to court we know well let's back up a second here too is this is king george's era you are guilty until proven innocent yeah it's really different it's very different and it, um, the law isn't coming to prove your innocence. They're essentially trying to disprove the um, accuser's evidence. Yes. It's a very different legal practice. Right. So Ruth's mother, Ruth's sister, we know that they go and they testify on her behalf. But what's really annoying about Ruth's case is that all of that oral testimony is not recorded and it's just lost to history. But there, like the record shows that people People testified, testified. Okay, which is which is really sad. And we know we know the midwife was there. So we know that women's voices were present in court. Mm -hmm. But we also know that the experts, right, the doctors, the um, lawyers, the judge, the jury all of it, um, the sheriff, the executioner, right? They're all male. And this entire law is built around, I mean, this is a really, like this law in and of itself, it's not a law that exists after the American Revolution because it's quickly gotten rid of. Um, but the law entirely exists to control women's bodies, right? Like you can be pregnant, but we need to know who the father is so that we can a- assign appropriate paternity, right? It's all about like protecting and defending. Well, and property. And property, <laughs> right. That child is a piece of property to whatever family it is associated to and they are owed. Right. Property rights. The claim about coming to its death by violence, that is not something that Carolyn Marvin takes seriously at all um, because the people that are making that claim would have had very little familiarity with, with infant death. what an infant looks like when What's they're born. Infan- no, infanticide? Infanticide, yeah. right. I mean, they might... Um, Infanticide was not uncommon in the colonial period, um, and it was, it's murder, it was considered murder, um, but they would not have known, the, be able to tell the difference and would not have had the ability to tell the difference between infanticide and a stillbirth. Yeah, 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 and makes sense. So she's, she very much dismisses um, that evidence. And the fact that it's clear the baby was born early and she admits to a fall and kind of the way it happened, like it clearly wasn't planned out well. Like if she had gone into labor under normal circumstances, she probably would have chosen a different location and, yeah. you know, whatever. And then maybe even have had witnesses, which yeah, would have if protected her. If it was premeditated, her. it would have been done differently. The right. fact that it wasn't is very telling. Yeah. But also, I don't know, every time I think about court cases from this time period, I just think of theatrics, like the drama, the intrigue, because the newspapers at the time, that's how they sold. That's like how they generated wealth for their their cause was to glorify circumstances. Not that the press doesn't necessarily do that today, but 
it was very real that the press would drive a lot of the behavior and understanding that the court had at that time period, too. Like, if they were publishing things, is there any newspaper article that she pulls? No. Sources that she has available to her are... She's looking at, actually, like, what the government is publishing rather than what people are saying in regard like hearsay yeah. out in the community and a lot of what would have been published like you're saying would have been very theatrical dramatic. and you know whatever so she's looking at what officials are saying and what would have actually been used to convict her yeah. for this okay. crime that makes sense yeah so ruth is taken in, uh, in prison the prisons at this time are not designed to be prisons it's supposed to be a jail cell that like you they hold you you Overnight. pay your fine hey, you don't live there you don't live there and so she's living there from the summer through till december and Jeez. it's a long time she gets several reprieves from the governor himself so he delays it because she says like i'm not ready to die can you please give me a reprieve um but her um, final request for reprieve doesn't come through and uh-huh. she's hanged you know a lot of this is like again just clouded in in mystery and trying to understand like what really happened to this woman what we do know like is that people uh, like felt that she was innocent and ruth herself a lot of what she felt and thought is lost because clearly she's holding a lot back like she doesn't tell who the father is she doesn't yeah, yeah, come review. forward with those things. Right. The day um, that she goes for execution, she gives a document to the press to be published Whoa. with her like final words. So it's titled The Declaration and Confession of Ruth Blay. And this is basically what she has to say for herself. And she titles it To the Public. As it is for now, but a few hours before I must exchange this mortal state for one that is eternal, it will be to no uh, it will be no advantage to me to say anything that is amusing, trifling, or impertinent to the numerous spectators of whom no doubt will come out of curiosity to see the behavior of a poor condemned person, others out of pity and compassion, but whatever may be their view. I now appear a spectacle to angels and men, but what are things of temporal nature to me? Nothing but in God, but God in Christ and my own conscience are of any avail with me. As to my fellow creatures, we are all upon a level as to the mercy of God. So she's very focused on like, I'm about to die. How do I want to like leave this world? But also it leaves a lot of people with this like puzzlement too of that she's not remorseful. It doesn't Mm. sound like she's like asking for forgiveness. She's like, we are all human We all make mistakes. We are allowed to live. Yeah. She says, while I've been bound in chains, it's needless of me to give a short history of my life. Um, Those documents that the public may have known, we don't necessarily know because there's many gaps in her life that we don't have any documents for today. But she does say, "Um, I've had some thought of and perhaps I had done it, though it might uh, seem in vain to me talking about, you know, providing this this history of her life. Yep. She says, it would have appeared as circumspect as some of my accusers who have borne false witness against me. So she accuses people of lying at her trial, which is like, oh, why don't those trial records still exist? Because then we could try to puzzle through who the liars are, you know, according to her. 
Before I enter upon any particulars relating to my trial and condemnation, I would return my most sincere thanks to His Excellency, the governor for his reprieves. So she's like thanking people who gave her these graces, um, these grace periods. odd. It's very odd. I appeal to God before whom I must shortly appear that I was with child. I never had a single thought of murdering the infant, which makes me even shudder to think it's possible any mother should be guilty of such cruelty. And therefore, I made preparation for its birth. I could now produce the clothes and woman whose keeping they are, but alas, it is too late. And on that unhappy day when I was delivered, I knew it had not been eight months for the time I was with child, therefore had not had not thoughts of being delivered at that time, but an unhappy fall, which I then received brought the birth instantly. Having also had another unhappy fall about 10 days before, which gave me great uneasiness and that which time I apprehend my child died. So she thinks her child died like 10 days prior and then she fell again and you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Because also like there's a huge stigma around miscarriage not being able to bring a child to term like well, all of those things all that women are good for is right. birth and it, like if they can't do that one thing yeah. like you know they're not a successful human in, in the world that this is at this time yeah so she was she says i was loath to reveal it and i imagined no good could come thereby but should have dis- disclosed the whole to my lawyers but was advised by my friends not to do it and thus i have been condemned I must declare the last witnesses have misinterpreted facts and some of them appeared with it with countenances that plainly showed they are unaffected with the solemnity of trial and fear as little regarded the solemnity of oath. So she's basically like flat out saying I was misled in my trial by my lawyers, Uh, people who testified lied about me like this is bad. She bids farewell to everyone. She hopes people will be kind to her aged mother and sisters. And then basically ends that and basically says she forgives these people. And that's, you know, whatever. And so this is released to the public the day after she's hung. The whole bit um, about... If it was released before, how many more people would have shown up and maybe spoke out? Oh, my gosh. Right? I don't know. So what's what's just really interesting to me from a teaching perspective is that, one, this crime existed. Didn't know that, right? Like, this yeah. is a crime. But, you know, like, like you would think that she was, you know, she is not accused nor executed for infanticide. So even though that's written in the, in the thing, that's not what they, that's not why she goes down. It's not infanticide. No. She's accused of concealing a pregnancy. Like, that's the crime. And it just reminds me that, like, this is the precedent for most law. Like, these are the patriarchal norms from which our laws have been derived. And, yeah. like, certainly we don't live – like, that law is not on the books anymore. Thankfully. But, like, it, like those same people it's who wrote that law yeah. wrote all the other ones, too, you know? So, it's just – it's a little – it's a little scary to me um, thinking about it that way. And I just – I can't, and I'm excited to walk through the cemetery at, in Portsmouth mm. with everyone this summer because I think it's interesting to think about like what it would be, what it would have been like to live not only just in an unjust society, but then to be condemned so unjustly and yeah. so knowingly unjustly, you know, by people living in that time, not just in retrospect. And, you know, to to have ballads written about your death 
um, and you're hanging. And I, I just think it's a really interesting story. I think it illuminates women's lives in the colonial era a yeah. little bit. It's also women who testify against her, which I also think is a function of the patriarchy, right? Because yep. it pits women against each other. Um, not because women are inherently catty, but it's like how, you know. Well, survival. Yeah. If if the, they'll turn to me, if I don't, I'll be the next one to be hung yeah. if I don't do what is asked of me and be obedient and docile. And yeah, it's a whole time period suck. The little girl who found the body, she went like her whole rest of her life. She was like, I knew Ruth was innocent. I knew Ruth was innocent. And this poor girl felt responsible for Ruth's death because she was the one who well, found the body. she should. It is her <laughs> fault. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Snitches get stitches. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. But it's, I mean, that's awful. That poor kid. I and especially in that time period, too. Like, you don't have any social media to be like, we're here for you, dude. Like, yeah. tell us your story. It's like, you sit alone with your thoughts. Right. I know. <laughs> and you think about what you've done. It's just like, oh, man. Yeah. Brutal. That's room. tough. Well, that's a really interesting story and one I certainly have never heard. Yeah. The third and final woman in New Hampshire. Thank goodness. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, oh. Ruth, good to hear from you. <laughs> and thank you to Dr. Carolyn Marvin, who wrote this wonderful yeah, book. Amazing. Did, did all this like really thorough research. If you Google Ruth Blay, pretty much every article that you can find online is citing Carolyn Marvin. Yeah. So she's the boss. She is the boss. Um, well, I'm excited to check it out this summer at our retreat, too. So that'll be really cool. Heck yeah. People can register on Eventbrite. Check Thanks, it out. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Brooke. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.